Reconciliation. Uh, Many of us, I guess, would agree that this is something we probably would like more of in the world in which we live. Reconciliation is the restoration of good relations between two parties, two individuals, two groups. Reconciliation is very much at the heart of our passage today. Perhaps, in fact, you might say that this is the passage. If you were to go anywhere in the Bible and you wanted to look at the subject of reconciliation, this is where you go. Now, by contrast, very, very stark contrast, our news is dominated, isn't it, by by quite the opposite. Division and acts of anger and hatred are throughout our headlines week after week. Why? Because people are alienated from each other. Alienation being the opposite of reconciliation. People are in bad relations with one another. And we've seen that in France this week, haven't we, with the shooting uh, in Paris uh, by religious extremists. Also, you you see it in a more political way uh, in France right now with an election with more candidates than they've ever known before. There's division. There's alienation politically, economically, in, in a whole heap of ways as we look around the world. See, as we look at, ooh, sorry, look at that. As we, I've done that before. As we look around the world, closer to home as well, we see the necessity for reconciliation everywhere, don't we, around us. And we long for the peace that reconcili- reconciliation offers. That necessity uh, for reconciliation in this world uh, with one another, yes, it is linked to our passage today. It is there very much. But it is less important than the reconciliation that our passage mainly focuses on. And that is the reconciliation that is needed between us, all of us here, and God. I wonder, do you understand the necessity? Do you understand the necessity for reconciliation between you and God? Let's have a look. First point on your sheets there, the necessity of reconciliation. And we're going to, before we jump into our passage today about reconciliation, let's go back, if you like, to the very, very beginning of the Bible, where Adam, in the Garden of Eden, willfully disobeyed God. Do you remember that? I hope you do. We're not going to turn there, but I'll just kind of summarise very quickly that Adam is full of self-interest, isn't he? He's wanting to be God himself. Adam watched Eve take the fruit, who was deceived by the serpent, but he saw no obvious consequences for that. He kind of of thought, well, well, why don't I just partake of the same thing? Keep going. He thought at that moment that he knew best. But when Adam then rebelled, when he sinned, the Bible uses that term there, when he sinned, that absolutely turned the world upside down. Where before, what, what had they enjoyed? They'd, Adam and Eve enjoyed this beautiful, intimate relationship with God. And now, they find themselves alienated from God because of their sin. What did that look like? What did that feel like? Well, they could then begin to see their sin for what it truly was. They felt shame. They felt guilt for the first time. Uh, when sin entered the world through Adam, there's this absolute cataclysmic cosmic shift in our relationships with God. Think about it for Adam. He went from having knowing only life to, to knowing death. 
from alienation, sorry, from intimacy to alienation, from not knowing sin to knowing sin. And all in this moment. Don't think Adam is alone though. Yes, he is our representative first, but we do nothing different. We are all rebels before God by nature and in our lives, and therefore we are alienated from God relationally because of our sin. Uh, Paul puts it elsewhere in Colossians 1, perhaps you'll know that well, verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, enemies, separated relationally, alienated, not reconciled. We are all like this by nature. Rebels, sinners, and therefore we are all in need of reconciliation. All of us without exception. However we look in comparison to those down the street, to those we know, to the the extremists that we see on the news, however we look in comparison to them, all of us without exception, by nature are alienated from God, in need of reconciliation. How is that possible? Let's have a look at it. Second point, the means of reconciliation. And here we're going to dive into our passage. Let's turn to these first few verses, verses 18 of chapter 5 through to verse 20. Let me read that again. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though, we are making, as, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Who does the reconciling? Did you see? It is totally the work of God. As verse 18 begins, look at it, it says, all this, all this is from God. Now that phrase is interesting because it looks back as much as it looks forward. All this includes what Paul has said before when we last looked at those previous verses. So therefore he's referring to his life. He's referring to his ministry that is controlled. Remember by those two motivations, chapter 5 verse 11, the fear of God, the right fear of his awesome majesty, but also the love of God, it compels him. Verse 14, there's two motivations. And he sums all of that up, his life and his ministry, uh, all from God, saying that wonderful phrase, if we're in Christ, what are we? We're new creations. If we put our faith in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are new creations. We've seen through faith, God is wonderfully, and it's a transformation that happens from the inside The old is gone. We now have the Holy Spirit indwelling in our hearts. If we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, we have a new mind. We have new longings. We have new desires, new dreams. We are transformed from the inside. We are new creations. And all this, verse 18, from God. But something comes before. What God has done in us, new creation is preceded, isn't it, logically and historically by what, is God, what God has done for us in Christ. And we see this in verse 18, look at it, all is from God, who reconciled us to himself 
through Christ again in verse 19, that God was reconciling the world there to himself through Christ. Sorry, verse 19 is different. Um, not counting uh, people's sins against them. We are new creations in Christ. Once alienated from God, relationally things were bad because of our sin. But we have been reconciled. Reconciled. Been brought back into good relations. God has worked wonderfully, lovingly, in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How? Look at it. He's reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now the reconciliation that he speaks of here is the relational element. We were once alienated because of our sin, bad relationships, deserving eternal justice. But through faith we're brought back into good relationship. But the method is what? That's spelled out in verse 19. The method of that reconciling, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. You see that in verse 19? So the justice that you and I deserve before God went on another. It wasn't counted against us. It was placed on, reckoned on Christ. God does not count our sins against us if we are willing to trust Jesus. Now before a holy and creator God, you and I on our own, are alienated because of our sin and rebellion. We need reconciliation. But you often, people hear, you often hear people say something like this, don't you? Do you know what? I've, managed to, I've been away on holiday and I've managed to make my peace with God about X. Or, I, I, you know, me and God, we've kind of made our peace with one another. Do you ever want to ask people like that and say, yeah, how did you do that then? How? Have you made your peace with God? What did you suddenly kind of go on holiday and offer God to make peace with him? Have you reconciled yourself to God? Go on, just tell me. What could you possibly bring to the table that could restore relationship between you and God that you have severed because of your sin and rebellion? See, too often people, I think people think that, you know, our rebellion and sin is just something that God kind of considers a little bit of naughtiness. You know, like clotted cream. Yeah, it may be just like skewed priorities. No, we need to wise up and we need to show others that they have to wise up. We have personally destroyed our relationship with God. And for that, we will be eternally alienated from his love. But the good news here is that in Christ, as new creations transformed from the inside, because of God's infinite love for us, he is prepared to not count my sin and your sin against us. The means of reconciliation is given here. We can be restored. You might say it's, it's through his redemptive love. Our sins not being counted against us is a redemptive work. <clears throat> Verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. In God's eternal love for you, he has reconciled you to himself. And the extraordinary thing about that is that God's the aggrieved one, isn't he? 
He's done nothing wrong. We've ignored him. We've tried to be like him ourselves. We try to assert his power and position. We've rebelled against his loving rule in our lives. And yet he, he's the one who's still willing to do absolutely everything that we need to be reconciled to him for eternity. We are the cause of the alienation between us and God. But in God's love for you and me, he provides the means, he provides the message that we need to hear, the method of reconciliation, and he takes the initiative himself to reconcile us to himself. Have you kind of just got how much God loves you? It's extraordinary. See, when people are usually reconciled to each other, Usually a third party is brought in, aren't they? You know, you've got two children squabbling in a playground, kicking each other or doing something like that. What happens? The teacher has to come in and say, right, you two, separate, say you love each other and pretend for a while. You know, or whatever it is. You know, and you know, in workplaces, employers and employees, you know, they're, they're bringing a lawyer or something like that. I know there's one or two of you here, do that work. You know, a third party to sort out the two individuals, to, to make them reconcile themselves to each other. You know, in a bigger scale, the UN General Secretary will be called in as a third party, really, to sit between two, perhaps, near-warring nations so that they might be reconciled, not alienated anymore. But with us and God, even though God is the wronged one, he initiates and he loves God reconciled us to himself. We're going to stay in those verses, but look what he's given us. The, the ministry of reconciliation, our third point on our sheets there. Verse 18, it says that, and Paul is speaking specifically, of course, about himself here as the apostle, but similarly in verse 19 where he says, <clears throat> he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now what does that look like? Verse 20 spells it out a bit more, doesn't it? We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, he says. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now Paul picks up this ancient terminology of uh, an ambassadorial kind of role. He applies it here to his ministry for Christ amongst the church in Corinth. Now, Many of you will know your savvy and you know, you know what an ambassador does. Many of you do, don't you? Of course you do. The British ambassador, let's think about him, in Germany or someone like that. You know, he doesn't live in Berlin with his family to, to go around telling everyone what he wants, what he thinks, or speaking for himself in any way at all. An ambassador has a role, but he never speaks or acts with his own authority. He speaks always on the behalf of another, with the power of another, namely with the country they come from. And likewise, Paul is saying here, he is Christ's ambassador amongst the church of Corinth. The message he speaks, therefore, doesn't originate with him. The power, the message, it, it's all from God. All this, verse 18, from God. When he speaks that message from God, as he says in verse 20, it's, it's as though God were making his appeal through us. When Paul speaks, what he's saying there, this is mind-blowing, he's saying, this is as if God speaks. 
Now that should make us think very carefully, shouldn't it? About what lies in front of us on our laps, in our hands. Also should make us think very carefully about ourselves. For example, right now as I preach, as far as I remain faithful to the text in front of us, I am, if you like, Christ's ambassador. It is, it is as if I were, God were making his appeal through me. As far as I remain faithful to the text. The same is true for all of us. If we dare to proclaim sensitively and faithfully the word of God in front of us. We are Christ's ambassadors. And it is as if God were speaking through us. Do you see, therefore, why we spend so much time, for example, on a Sunday or on a, on, in our groups midweek, making sure that we understand the Bible? I expect every single one of us, we've been looking through Mark's Gospel this year, haven't we, in our small groups. I expect every single one of us to be able to take one of those and give it to a neighbour, give it to a friend, give it to a colleague, give it to someone else, sports team, whoever they may be. I expect every single one of us to be able to hand them and say, I'll read that with you. I'll read that with you. I'm sure you've got some questions, but I'd love to read it because in here is the living gospel message that could save you for eternity to be with God. I expect every single one of us to do that and have the confidence to do that. In your groups you are being taught how to faithfully handle God's word. Why? So that you can be Christ's ambassadors. So you can hold out the, word, the truth of God's word. And it will be as if God were making his appeal through you. Do you see the privilege of that? Oh, I'm sure it's a bit scary, isn't it? But what a privilege. Could you think of anything better to do in life? Paul says to the church he loves, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What else do you say to those you love? Is there anything more important for your friends, your loved ones, your family, who do not know Christ? Is there anything more important that you need to say to them? Paul implores. It's such a strong, emotive word there. He, he's appealing to them. Uh, it's, it's, it's such an impassioned sentence. There's nothing more important for my friend, for my neighbour, for my colleague, for my loved one, for my spouse, my mum, my dad. If they do not know, if they do not know Christ, <clears throat> the only thing you should be saying is be reconciled to God. It's the most important thing. And you're saying by that, receive the offer of reconciliation. Note that it's a passive command. We don't reconcile ourselves to God. We simply receive this offer of peace. Be reconciled to the loving creator. Oh, we see the, the, we know the necessity. We see the means provided by God. We know the privilege of being able to minister this amazing truth to others. But how? How are we reconciled? If, if God does the work, if, if God provides the means, how does it just kind of happen? Let's have a look at it, verse uh, 21. That's so well-known verse. If there were a verse to commit to memory 
from God's Word, the Bible, you'd have to put this in the top five at least. And I know some of you have. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I hope you commit that to memory. This is the heart of the atonement, the the message of the gospel, that God acts to bring about reconciliation through his son, Jesus Christ. What does it look like? As we've seen, our sin offends God, grieves him, alienates us relationally from him. Reconciliation cannot mean the ignoring of our rebellion. It's not God saying, oh yeah, I'll just kind of forget that and just go, oh yeah, we we don't look at that anymore. No. It can't be, that would mean God becoming less than himself. No longer just. Likewise, reconciliation can't mean just the reduction of God's displeasure at our sin. Reconciliation is not God moving from incredibly angry to slightly peeved. No. God's right and just anger, our rebellion against him, must be removed completely if we are able if we are to be reconciled to God for eternity. And we've seen that God doesn't count our sin against us if we are in Christ. We are forgiven if we trust in Christ. That is absolutely necessary, but reconciliation is more than that. It is a restoration of a broken relationship. So how? Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. God made Jesus, his one and only precious eternal son, the one who humbled himself to become a human, the sinless one. What does it say? He made him to be sin for us. Now, of course, clearly Paul has the cross in mind here, where we know essentially a cosmic exchange takes place. It's what this verse is all about. Paul put it like this in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Simply, the justice of God, the curse of God, that ought, should fall on each one of us for our sin, for not keeping the law, falls instead on the one who always kept the law, namely Jesus. He treated Jesus, God treated Jesus as the lawbreaker, as you, as me. So that lawbreakers like you and me can be treated as sinless, perfect ones. There is a swap that is going on here. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus didn't become a sinner. He was and always will be the the perfect one. Jesus became sin for us. That is, he took on himself this punishment that my sin deserves and your sin deserves. He took on himself the curse that my law-breaking deserves. When Jesus hung on the cross, the reason he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is because he was bearing all the guilt and he was bearing all the shame and the justice that my sin deserves and every one of us. 
Think of the weight of that. All that pride. All that envy. All that lust and that greed and that anger. Isn't it amazing that we even struggle if we dare to conceive how much that is true of each of us. We don't even like to think about it of us individually. The weight of it is awful, isn't it? And yet Jesus took it all on himself. Christ was being alienated from God because he was willing to take on our sin. He was being sin for us. Can I say to you today, if you missed everything else, you must understand this. This is everything as far as the Christian faith is concerned. But it is only half the story of this verse. Look at it. But God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, all our sin is credited, is counted on Jesus, is punished on Jesus. He became sin for us, but that we might become the righteousness of God. I told you there's a swap. That's, we've talked about one way, the first clause of, the, of that verse. The second clause is, is the other way, isn't it? We are declared righteous as we put our faith in the Lord Jesus. Right in the eyes of God for eternity, according to his law. Because the life of the law keeper, namely Jesus, is counted as ours, is credited to us. It covers ours. And as a result... We are judicially declared fit for an eternity to be in God's love. This is a legal declaration that's going on here. It's the, we might call the doctrine of justification. But it is so much more because in being legally right with God, we are new creation, as Paul has said. We get a new way of life and we are reconciled to God, restored in good relationship how God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God this is the saving gospel of Jesus Christ and this is the only way that we alienated from God can be brought back into good relationship with God God in his initiating love has revealed to us given us this way back to intimacy to loving beautiful eternal relationship with him and if you are here today and you are not in relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ look at verse 21 please understand it and if you do trust it Put your faith in this gospel truth that Jesus is offering to be sin for you. And he's offering his perfect, righteous, law-keeping life to be counted as yours. Result? Reconciliation. That is the how, lastly the urgency. These last two verses in um, chapter 6. Look at verse 1. As God's fellow workers, we urge you 
not to receive God's grace in vain. Paul ends with a plea. He loves this church, as we've seen very clearly, and we'll see throughout the letter. And he urges his readers not to receive God's grace in vain. They are in danger of hearing another gospel from other teachers. We'll see that. Chapter 11, verse 4 makes that clear. Their original response to the authentic gospel message that Paul had proclaimed to them, reconciliation through Christ and Christ alone, is being challenged. And Paul is begging them, pleading with them to stay. To stay and trust the authentic message that he has proclaimed as an ambassador for Christ. And you can hear his urgency when he gets to verse 2, when he quotes from Isaiah 49. For he says, In the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. This is a prophecy from the book of Isaiah, chapter 49. And it's speaking of the, about the restoration of the nation of Israel. Linking Now Paul is linking that to the restoration that we have known in and through Christ when we are new creations. And Paul says in effect here, the days of Isaiah that he spoke of have arrived. Corinthians, us who are listening today, don't miss this. The opportunity of salvation is here, today. Oh, you may have been coming for a church, to church for a while, going to a different church for a while, hearing this kind of message of the gospel again and again, that Christ has died and he's become sin for us, that we can gain righteousness and so on. You might go, you'd be able to repeat it verbatim and know it. You may have heard it, but have you put your faith in it? Please do. Because you do not want to receive God's grace in vain. So many people I've known, and I guess you will know too, you hear it, but you never respond. You hear it in vain. It is not effectual in your life. Please take a moment, see your need for reconciliation with God. Know the means. It is all from God. Understand the message that comes from this ministry of God's word. Be clear about how God can reconcile you. Verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And be aware of the urgency, please. Now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Let me finish with this. Charles Simeon was a great preacher, a great evangelist in this country who died in November 1836. He served, many of you know, if you went to Cambridge University, um, he served in Christchurch, Cambridge. It's right in the centre of the colleges there, a very famous church. If you go on a day trip, go and see it. It's beautiful. He was a fellow of the university, a professor for over 50 years. He struggled at the beginning in his ministry, uh, but had a flourishing ministry in the end. He was a brilliant, a very conservative man, In a sermon once, he was reminding the church that there were people who had heard him preach this gospel message for 30 years or more and yet remained indifferent to to God's love in Christ. 30 years they'd sat and heard one of the greatest preachers this country has ever known. 
And they remain indifferent to God's love in Christ, to this message of reconciliation. Remember Charles Simeon, one of the most conservative men you can probably imagine. He became utterly overwhelmed by this, sank down in his pulpit and burst into uncontrollable tears. And many in the church wept with him. To receive God's grace in vain, remaining cynical, letting it wash over you is perhaps the greatest tragedy of this world. And like Simeon, we should weep for whom that is true. And if that is you, if you come along to church, yet this gospel of reconciliation to you at this moment is just dull and boring. If you are cold to the love and the mercy of God found in the Lord Jesus Christ, please, I urge you to hear the urgency. Now, now is the time of God's favour. And now is the day of salvation. My friends, if you're a Christian here today, I wonder, do you weep? Do you weep for those that you know who are missing out? Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. I wonder if you implore your friends. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you. Many of us know that we were once alienated because of our sins and our lives, and yet we have been reconciled in Christ. Lord, this is sweet news. We absolutely love you because of it. And help us therefore see the urgency and the joy and the privilege of being able to share this message of reconciliation to those we know and love. Is there anything more important this week, next week, in the years to come? I pray that our priorities would be right. Amen.